Please turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. If you don't have one, we have some extras in the back. Um, if you insist on using your phone, word of caution, they are very distracting. So I would strongly encourage you to at least put on an airplane mode. I'm always a fan of a paper Bible. Um, helps me remember when I'm actually holding it. Nehemiah chapter 4. 346 years ago, in the year 1678, there was a middle-aged man imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And he was sentenced to prison, and he would be released immediately if he agreed to stop preaching. And said, if you say you're done, we'll let you out. He insisted that he could not do that, and he instead remained in jail for 12 years. Thankfully for us, he did not let these 12 years go to waste. Instead, he used them to write a book that many of you have heard of. It's called Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress speaks of a young man named Christian who is on a journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city, to the city of heaven. There's all these images in this book. And in his journey, Christian wrestles with pain, with doubt, With sorrow, afflictions, persecutions, you name it. He comes across all these different enemies and trials and obstacles. One of the enemies he meets on the road is named Apollyon, which means destruction. Apollyon tries to persuade Christian that the Christian life, that serving God as a master is a wasted life, that it's going to end in misery, death, shame, a wasted life. Listen as I read from his encounter. Christian had gone out but a little way before he spotted a foul fiend coming over the field to contend with him. His name was Apollyon. Now the master, the monster was hideous to behold. He was clothed with scales like a fish. He had wings like a dove. He had feet like a bear. And out of his belly came fire and smoke. And his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. When he had come to Christian, he looked upon him with an arrogant stare and thus began to dispute with him. He roars, consider again what you are likely to meet with me along the way that you are now going. You know, Christian, for the most part, the servants of God come to a wretched end. How many of them have been put to shameful deaths? Your master never delivers any who serve him out of my hands, but as for me... How many times, as all the world very well knows, have I delivered those who faithfully served me from him, either by power or by fraud? This creature who represents Satan is a fierce opponent to Christian. He uses all of his different schemes to figure out how to get Christian off this road, off of his journey to heaven. And in many ways, this is reminiscent of our own passage in Nehemiah 4. If you're just joining us, we've been following the life of a man named Nehemiah who follows this mission that God lays on his heart to go back to his homeland and rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem that had been torn down. A couple weeks ago, Sam Stelzel preached on chapter 3 where we saw the beginning of the actual building of the walls. But where we pick up in chapter 4 tonight is Satan's work in stirring up these enemies. He's stirring up these adversaries. Here we're reminded again that whenever the people of God do the work of God, it always stirs up the enemies of God. 
The enemy in this passage goes by a different name, but he has the same motives. See if you can identify the different ways that he attacks God's people as we read this. Nehemiah chapter 4. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. And let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So Nehemiah and the people built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that they were making progress, the breaches were beginning to be closed They were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in the city. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies came and said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears and their shields and their bows. And I looked in a rose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. That is a rally. (laughs) This is God's word. Let's pray for it. God, as we look at this passage that was written 2,500 years ago, we ask that you would make it alive to us tonight, to our hearts, that you would meet us where we are, that our hearts would be ready to receive it, that you would provoke us, Lord, to see you, to behold you, to love you, to know your love for us. We know all of this is only possible by your spirit. So we ask that he would come and stir within us tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes, my title tonight is this, Put Your Hope in God. Put your hope in God. You can put three little dots because we're going to complete that as a sentence. My goal is to show that each of the fierce attacks that the enemy comes against Nehemiah and the Jews with, we also experience. And they provide us an opportunity to do just that, to put our hope in God. First point, number one, when you are mocked. Put your hope in God when you are mocked. What we see in verse one is our old friend Sanballat and Tobiah returning. Maybe you remember these names. We talked about them in chapter 2. And the last that we heard from them in chapter 2, they weren't, they weren't happy when Nehemiah arrived. 
And then when Nehemiah starts getting the people on board to build the wall, they're really not happy. Now, in chapter 4, that they're actually building, the passage says that they were angry and greatly enraged. How do they express this? Through mockery. They mock the Jews. Sanballat jokes, he's standing with his army, and he's watching the Jews, and he's just, just jabbing them, just like, just poking at them. What are these weak people doing? Do they really think that they can finish this wall, that they can do all this work? They're so small, they're so incapable. They can't actually think that giving their best shot will be enough, can they? Tobiah even adds a joke. He says their wall can't even support a fox, which is like, you know, seven pounds. So obviously that's a joke. A wall could support a seven-pound fox. And none of us today are in the middle of building a wall. But I'm sure that each of us have experienced the mocking of Satan. Here's what that could look like. What a lousy Christian. Does she really think that God has forgiven her all her shame? What a poor attempt by that young man. He promised he would never lie again, and yet the very same day he lied once more. Does he really think that God is pleased with him? How could he, after all he's done against him? Does she really think that God can rebuild her life from the ruins and the rubble that it is in? Some of you are plagued with thoughts like that frequently. They go through your mind, and you don't know how to deal with them. Where do you go? How do you respond? The passage gives us a great guide. The scene change between the mocking and what happens next is so rapid that in our passage, there's literally no introduction. There's no transition. Immediately, Nehemiah bursts into prayer. Look at verse 4. Hear, O Lord, for our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you, O God, to anger in the presence of the builders. Now we read these words and they kind of sound harsh. It sounds like a strong indictment. But what Nehemiah is asking for is justice. He sees the enemies of God provoking the God, saying to the Jews that your God is small and incapable, he, and he cries for justice. Nehemiah and his people are being mocked, and they don't, notice this, they don't defend themselves with sinful words in retaliation. Rather, they call upon God to defend them for them. How often do you and I hear a mocking voice from someone else accusing us, saying mean, hurtful things about us, and we just want to tell them off. We want to defend ourselves. We want to prove, no, you can't talk to me like that. No, that's not true. I'm stronger than that. I'm better than that. I can do more than that. Right? How quickly is that our first reaction? Sometimes what they're saying is wrong, like Tobias' comment. The wall that they were building was nine feet thick, it was certainly strong enough to support a fox. But how do you defend from the adversary when what he is saying is true? How do you defend when the claims that he is making against you, how weak and insignificant you are, are actually true and you know it? Where do you go? What do you do? It's 
Student, do you know that when you are mocked by someone else or even Satan himself in your mind, you don't have to respond with a lying defense about how capable and significant and sufficient you are. Do you know that? Do you know that there's a better response than that? Do you see how Nehemiah responds? He says, Lord, they're right. He doesn't deny it. He says, they're right. We are weak and insignificant, but you are not. Would you vindicate yourself, God? Would you display your power to this people by helping us, helping us to endure, to do this work, to build this wall? This is a great prayer, and it's one that we often neglect. We don't even think about that. But acceptance of our weakness is often the best start to the displaying of God's power. When we admit how weak we are, that's when God's power looks so great in our lives, because it is. What we see next may surprise some of us, because when we put our hope in God, it inevitably leads to action. That's what verse 6 says. Look at it. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Nehemiah says this prayer. He, instead of defending himself with his own sinful words, he trusts God, and then he goes to work. So we built the wall for the people had a mind to work. When you really trust that God can and will work, it doesn't lead to apathy. It leads to confidence. It leads to movement, to action, to do God's work. The people we keep on working because they have put their hope in God. Do you see that? Fortunately for the Jews and for us, there's more than one tactic that the enemy can use on us. You put your hope in God when you're mocked. And also, number two, when you are threatened. When you are threatened. What happens next in the narrative is the raising of the stakes. Sanballat and Tobiah don't only mock with their words, but now they gather the troops around Jerusalem. And what's significant in verse 7 is it shows that these three enemies, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, are on the other three sides of the city. So basically, Sanballat rallies everyone, around, everyone else around them, and now the city is surrounded by enemies. And the enemies come to the Jews, and they're very angry, and they come with threats to fight and to kill the Jews. That is their intent. Imagine yourself to be a remnant Jew in this day. I know it's hard. We live in the 21st century in America. It's very different than what they're experiencing. But just imagine this. You're living in a ruined city, Jerusalem. What happened in the book right before Nehemiah, Ezra, is that some Jews had returned and they started building up God's temple because they felt like that was what the Lord was calling them to do. But the problem came is that the king of Persia stopped his funding for this temple rebuild, and it sat unfinished for 17 years. Now, let me ask you, have you ever seen a building that they started working on, and then they abandoned it? I have. And you see it, and you're like, that's a bummer. That sucks. Like, they started, they planned, they had these aspirations, and now it's just a thorn in the flesh of what could have been. Or the glory days that we used to have, that we used to have the success, and now we don't. And so you have to remember that the Jews who are building these walls have those thoughts in their mind. That they're recalling their weakness. They're recalling when God stalled their project for 17 years and it sat unfinished and they felt discouraged. They felt hopeless in those times. 
By God's grace, the king's mind was changed and the temple did eventually get finished. But that's what was going through the minds of the exiles in Nehemiah's time as they're building. What if we get shut down? What if our work is for nothing? This is all a waste of time. What if these enemies around us are right? Now, on top of this, Sanballat's not just tossing insults, but he's even threatening to kill them. Their thoughts would have quickly moved from, is this project really worth my time, to, is this project really worth my life? Am I really that committed to it? When the stakes are raised, when the mocking moves to threats, when Satan cranks up the temptation to quit, he increases the infliction in your life, where do you go? Do you put your hope in your own defenses, your own strengths? Or do you put your hope in God? Look how Nehemiah responds in verse 9. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Do you see the same pattern? Same as the last one. The text does not just say, we set a guard. We, we did our part. And it also doesn't just say, we prayed that God would help us. It has both. It includes both. We prayed, therefore we did. Christian, our lives cannot be lives of prayerless action or actionless prayer. We got to have both. Because honoring Christ with our lives means faithful, dedicated, hard work that's fueled by love and affection and communion with God. That's what fuels it. This has always been the pattern. And it leads to a joy-filled and a productive life. It's the best life. Trust me, it is the best life that you can have. It's hard. Sometimes it's sad. Sometimes it hurts. But it is joy-filled even if it brings forth mockery and threats and opposition. Some of you long to do this. You really want it in your heart, but there's another thing holding you back. It's the last attack of Satan that we see in this passage. Number three, put your hope in God when you are betrayed. When you are betrayed. Look at verse 10 with me. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing and there is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. The mockery, the threats of the enemies, they're starting to wear on the backs of these Jews. As they're working day after day, they're hearing threats, mockery, opposition. They're hearing, you can't do it. You're never going to finish. There's no way you can accomplish this. And it's starting to add Weight to their backs. And what adds to this is what we see in verse 12. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. Now imagine this. Not only is it the people on the outside who are saying you can't do it. Now it's the people on the inside who are supposed to be on your side. They're saying, we have to stop. You must return to us. We are in danger Not only do Nehemiah's people face these threats from the opponent, but now it's internal. The people are losing hope. The rally is dying out. Don't know how this fits into your specific current life situation, but I'm sure that there are those in this room who feel discouraged because the people in your life who are supposed to support you aren't. Instead, they're attacking you. 
whether that's a sibling, a friend, a parent, a coach, teacher, whoever. Probably the most crushing weight that we can feel is when we are betrayed by the ones that we hold closest to us, our dearest friends. Maybe we can handle it when an adversary comes against us because we know they're an opponent. Keep my guard up. I'm not going to get hurt by you. But you invite a friend in your life and your friend betrays you. What do you do? Where do you go? Five hundred years after this account of Nehemiah comes another man, a better Nehemiah. And though he was equal with God, he did not hold on to that equality with white knuckles. Instead, he gave it up. The one who formed the universe, who created time, entered into it. And he subjected himself to the temptations, to the oppositions, to the mockery, to the threats that you and I experience So that he might sympathize with us in our weakness. He became like us. And he invited people into his life. Specifically, he invited 12 men to share life with, to do do ministry with, to labor with, to dine with, to sleep with. He was with these men all the time. And when the moment came where he knew he would be delivered up, wrongfully accused of the sins he did not commit, He invites his three closest friends to pray with him, to pray for him. Imagine what an incredible opportunity that would be to pray for the Son of God, Jesus. And yet, Matthew 26 records that they could not stay awake. They were too weak. They didn't have the strength. On top of this, out of all creation, one of the 12 men that he chose to share his life with betrayed him. His friends fail him. A close friend betrays him, sells him over for pocket change. And if this wasn't hard hard enough, Jesus understood that the only way that sinful men could could be made right with God is if the debt that they earned by their sin was paid off by him. And he understood that to pay their debt, he had to take their place. Do you understand that Jesus Christ, the righteous, became condemned so that you, sinner, condemned sinner, could be made righteous? Do you see that? There is an exchange that God has offered himself for you. Christ willingly accepted the mockery and threats of the opponent and the betrayal of his friends, even of his eternal father, who loved him more than you have ever loved anyone or anything in this entire world and ever will. And he gave him up. So that you might be brought near. He took your place. And now he offers you an invitation, not just to heaven, but to joy in this life with him, to productive work, not to building a wall, but to building a kingdom, an eternal kingdom, one that lasts forever. Where does this leave us? What what do we do with that? Look at verse 14. Nehemiah, in the midst of the people's discouragement, 
It says this, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the officials, to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. Nehemiah closes this section with an absolute power statement. Okay? Do not be afraid of them. Do not pay attention to their mocking. Do not listen to their threats. Do not fear being betrayed. Instead, Christian... Put your hope in God. It is a better hope. It is a much better hope. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Student, when you feel so crushed and discouraged by your life, perhaps it's because you're only looking at what's right here, what's immediately surrounding you. Instead, put your hope in God. Get your eyes up off of here, off of this, and onto Him. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and meditate on his word. Remember his promises that he gives you. They are a gift. Don't neglect them. That if you have placed your trust in Jesus, he is 100% for you and not against you. That you have been adopted into his family forever, irrevocably. Not according to your works, but according to his mercy. We will see in the coming chapters that Nehemiah does, in fact, complete the work ahead of him. He does build the wall. Some of you may have realized that I left you hanging a little bit from the beginning, talking about Christian and Apollyon. How did the battle go? How did the battle go? Well, Apollyon attacks Christian. He reminds him of all the ways he's not been faithful to his new master. He asks him, do you really think you'll be accepted. Looking back on all the ways you failed. Apollyon says this, you were discouraged when you began your race, your walk. You almost choked in the slew of despond. You attempted wrong ways to be rid of your guilt. You sinfully slept. Sounds like the disciples. You lost your word, your Bible. At the sight of the enemies, you were almost persuaded to go back. Sounds like the Jews. And when you talked of your journey and what you had heard and seen, you were secretly proud of all that you said and did. Christian responds with this. All this is true and much more that you have left out. But the king whom I serve and honor is merciful and he is ready to forgive. And I have obtained pardon from my king. Do you know this king? This king that you can stand before and have a full acknowledgement of all the ways that you failed. Every single one of them. Because he knows them all. He knows all of your sins, all of your weaknesses, all of your terrible thoughts that have ever gone through your mind. And yet he offers pardon, forgiveness. This is the king who moves towards you in love. Who invites you to place your hope in him. Not in your works, not in your success, not in your faithfulness, not in anything else in this world, because all of those things will one day collapse. They will crumble. But if you put your hope in God, he is gracious and he forgives. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word. I pray that you would stir within our hearts as we think on it, as we talk on it, as we look at your word. Be with us tonight, Lord. We need help. We are weak. And you are strong. Would your strength shine in our lives? In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.